Open your Bibles with me to the book of 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. We are continuing our series on history that matters. And if you'll notice our, our graphic, I will not learn false history. I will not learn false history. I will not learn false history. We are going to reveal this morning that most of us have learned false history. The system of economics that our nation was founded upon no longer exists. And we have learned a false history on it. Uh, I remember one time I got into a conversation with my grandmother before she died, and I would have been, oh, probably in seventh or eighth grade, I would guess. And she was a, a democratic activist, and uh, she led the, she was the first woman elected to the school board in New Jersey, and um, she loved FDR. And I remember one time I said something, and I didn't know that she loved FDR. I wasn't, you know, not that I'm sophisticated now, but I was much less sophisticated at that point. And uh, I had said something about FDR. Uh, I think it was either extending the Depression or bringing about the financial trouble that we have now. And she got so mad at me. And she was mean anyway. But she got so mad at me. And uh, telling me about how FDR had saved our nation and, and all of those things. Well, let me ask you a question. How many of you have been taught that FDR saved the nation from the Depression? How many of you have been taught that? We're going to look at some things this morning. In a future, at a future time, maybe on a Sunday night, I'd like to go specifically through his administration and demonstrate how he turned what was a market correction and recession into the Depression. There would not have been a Depression if it wasn't for the policies of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. But um, we're not going to have the time to do that today. We're going to look at the bigger picture of socialism. Socialism and the social gospel. So let's begin with a biblical understanding of economics. So look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And I hope that you've noticed this has been our pattern throughout this series because we have a limited, many people have a limited attention span. I want to get to what the Bible says first, then y'all can go to sleep on the other stuff, okay? So let's look at what the Bible says about uh, money and about our relationship to it. But look at Second Thessalonians chapter 3. Let's start reading in verse 10. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat? Anybody here believe that? I had meant to look up the number of checks the government sends to people. I think it's something like 50 million, dollar, 50 million Americans a month receive a check from the government. Did you hear what I said? 50 million people. Now, let's go back to our text. For even when we were with you, this we suggested. Is that what the text says? Um, imagined, preferred. What does it say? Commanded. This we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. Pastor, that's just your interpretation of that passage. And what's the answer to that? All I did was read it. 
It is interesting how when you read a text that is as clear as this text, how squirrely people get. I mean, it is so funny. You watch them, they're like a cat on a hot tin roof. They tap dance all over the place. We could close the Bible and pray, and we understand the answer to socialism. That's what it is. If you want to have food, work. Work. Let's go on in the text. Verse 11. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. Now them that are such we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. But ye, brethren, be not weary in well-doing. So here's what we have. We have a very clear teaching to the local church. And the thing about First and Second Thessalonians that's vitally important for us to understand is those books are specifically written to the church in the last days. In every chapter of First and Second Thessalonians, there's a reference to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Anybody here believe Jesus Christ is coming back? I do too. So these things are addressed to us specifically. And the message for the church is don't be a mooch. That's Greek. Okay. Don't be a mooch. Work, keep your mouth shut, and serve God. That's the answer to socialism. So how did we get to the place where people have the idea that every vagrant that walks in the door, we're supposed to give them what we have earned? Gordon, i got to tell it. I, I, was, uh, I was doing some post-premarriage counseling with uh, Amanda and Justin. We didn't get their premarriage counseling finished before they got married, so now we're really getting into it. It's good stuff. I think I'm going to do that that way from now on. It's pretty cool because you find out what you need after you've been together for about a month, right? <laughs> so anyway, Wednesday night we're counseling, and I heard the door open, and I don't, it's real quiet. I hear the outdoor, outside door open. Somebody's walking down the hall. And I looked behind, and I, I, said to, I said to them, I said, I think we have a vagrant. Hold on. So I went out there, and it was Gordon. He had this hat on that looked like he had scraggly hair down the back. It was just my bad eyesight. It was so funny. I got down there, so Gordon's our vagrant. But what happens is, what happens, and this happens especially at this time of year, people flock on the church. Do you help with rent? Can you help us buy Christmas presents? Can you pay my electric bill? Um, can you give me enough gas to drive to Dayton because my mom's sick? All right, that's what we get over and over and over again. My first question that I asked them, where do you go to church? I had someone call me this week and asked me if I would marry them. And I said, where do you go to church? Well, we don't. I said, I'll tell you what, you come to our morning service, and I'll meet with you after the service, and we can talk about it. Look, our deacons have experienced this. Uh, when someone wants help, we simply ask them to come to a church service. They're not interested in the Word of God. And yet... Somehow we've gotten to the place in the churches where, and I can't speak for the church, and let me just, can I do a famous Jim Alter rabbit trail here for a second? Um, this idea of, of the church, here's what the church needs to do. Nobody speaks for the church except Jesus Christ. You know, I, 
There are, I don't know how many churches there are in Sydney. I think there are 15 Baptist churches in Shelby County. I can't speak for the Baptist churches. The only church I can speak for is Grace Baptist Church. Amen? So people speaking for the church, the problem with the church in general is most of them are lost. They're not saved. The thing that people address is the church. They're not born again. Um, okay, now I've got to clear that up. I'm not saying that only people at Grace Baptist Church are saved. But most of the people in broader Christianity have not come to Jesus Christ in faith, repenting of their sins and trusting Jesus Christ alone for their eternal life. Most, that's not the message that's preached in most churches, which is the point of our message today. So what, what I wanted to address, though, just in a brief way, is this idea that the church, that the local church, is somehow responsible for every poor person in the community. That is not biblical Christianity, and that is not the system that our nation was founded upon. Our nation was founded upon personal accountability and individual responsibility. That's what it was founded on. The perfect example of that is the TSA, the, the, tra the Transportation Safety Administration. Especially after 9-11, now if you're going to get on an airplane, you've got to basically strip yourself naked to get on an airplane to make sure that you don't have anything that might hurt somebody. You can't have fingernail clippers. What are you going to do, trim their eyebrows? I mean, it's insane how far it's gone when our founders, the attitude of our founders would have been, okay, before you get on the plane, you need to make sure that you have a weapon so that you can, you can fulfill your role in defending this aircraft. That's the difference. Do you know what changed it? Socialism, communism, totalitarianism. That's what's changed it. The idea, the founding ethos of our nation was based on a scriptural understanding of individual accountability. That is what the nation was founded on. That's what the scriptures teach. Then the Bible says. So now that we have this established, now do you see that this is a clear teaching in scripture? Do we need to expound it anymore? Or is it very clear just from the words? If you don't work, you don't eat. If someone in the church is behaving that way, they are walking disorderly. Don't have fellowship with them. Did we read that verse yet? Let's, let's, I don't know if we read that verse. Let's make sure we read that verse. Verse 12. Now we command them that we command... Now then... Let's try it again. Now them that are such, we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. But ye, brethren, be not weary in well-doing. And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man, and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So here's the idea. If Who am I going to pick on today? If Bob... No, you're too dignified. If Matt, <laughs> see what you get for visiting Grace Baptist Church. If Matt wants to attend here, but doesn't want to work, wants to come and mooch off of us and bounce from family to family getting money, we're supposed to say, hit the road, Jack. You can't be here. You cannot be here. Now, we love you. If you want to come and act right, work live like a believer, you're welcome. 
That's exactly what the Bible says. That's different. Now, let me say this. I'm all for a rescue mission. Rescue mission's great. Their purpose is to provide a warm place and a warm meal and maybe some clothes. But before they can get the food, before they can get the clothes, they got to hear the preaching of the Word of God. Amen? And the goal of the rescue mission is not for that person to stay in need of the rescue mission. I'm all for that. But honestly, that's not the mission of the local church. The mission of the local church is to lead people to Christ, build them up in the faith, send them out to lead other people to Christ and build them up in the faith. And as we do that, the Bible says, as you have opportunity, uh, uh, be good to every man, especially those that are of the household of faith. So we are supposed to help each other. We have often taken offerings for people in our church who are struggling financially. We will do that. Amen? Now, I'm going to have a line outside my door after the morning service, but, but that's fine. Man, if you're here, you're serving God, you're being faithful, and, and times are hard, we will help you. We will. As a church, we will come together and help each other. And the way things are going, we may have to do that a lot. But that's different than people coming and demanding things from the church because that's what Jesus would do. I think people have a misunderstanding of what Jesus would do. Look at Ephesians chapter 4. Here's God's plan for the whole thing. Ephesians chapter 4. You say, Pastor, you always look mad when you talk about this stuff. Well, sometimes I am. Other times I'm not. It's just my demeanor. This one I get kind of mad about. Because they guilt you, you know. They scam you. You know, they come in with this song and dance about how tough their life is. Well, that 50 bucks isn't going to change their life. The Lord Jesus Christ will change their life. And I'm happy to give them the 50 bucks if they'll let us teach them. Amen? But if they're not going to let us teach them, we're not a charity. That's my answer. You know what? We're not a charity. Well, I don't really like church. Well, then you certainly don't want our money. Amen? All right. Now, look at Ephesians chapter 4. And let's start reading in verse... uh, Let's start reading in verse 15. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body... This is talking about the local church, fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working and the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk, not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. Now, now I, I want you to see something. It is always fascinating to me. What does he say that he wants us to do? He wants us to speak the truth in love. Amen? Then he goes on to say that people are walking in blindness and through the ignorance of their heart. Do you know that identifying blindness and ignorance of heart is speaking the truth in love? Isn't that interesting? So now, because, of course, we get that. When you preach a message like this, if a man will not work, he shouldn't eat. That's not loving. Really? That's not loving. 
So getting a person addicted to handouts is loving? No, that's not loving. Best thing you can do for your children is teach them how to work. Amen? Then, verse 19. This describes them. Who being past feeling have given themselves over to unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But ye have not so learned Christ. If so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. That's what this series is all about. We've learned false truth. Now we need to be renewed in the spirit of our mind to find out what true holiness is, what true righteousness is. All right? And so then it says this, And that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Well, then he describes what righteousness and holiness actually looks like in a practical way. Verse 25, Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. All right, so we don't lie. We don't lie. Amen? So we don't put up a bill in Congress that says, this is the Community Investment Act, which takes money from me and gives it to people who don't work. That's not a Community Investment Act. That's called stealing. It really is. All right? Then, so stop lying. Then verse 26, be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. It is inappropriate. It is inappropriate to live in the local church, in your home, or in society as an angry person. It's wrong to be that way. And I can speak as one who has at times let my anger get in the way. That's sin, man. That's wrong. It hurts my influence personally, and it hurts the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? When you do that, you give place to the devil. You give the devil opportunity to work. Don't do that. So now, let's go on. Verse 28, let him that stole steal no more. Is anybody picturing Congress right there? But rather, let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. So what's the answer for the poor? Well, we teach him to work. And when they really need something, those of us who are working, we voluntarily give it to them. That's God's plan. How many of you have ever helped somebody in need financially? Okay, hold your hands up for a second. Everybody look around. Boy, you wicked conservatives. See, the difference is Christianity is out of what Christ has done for you through the goodness of your heart that comes not from your goodness, but by the Holy Spirit that's in you, you voluntarily and willingly live within your means so that you are able to help people that are in need. That's God's plan. A long time before we had welfare, a long time before we had Social Security, a long time before we had all of these programs, godly people were helping poor people. Amen? So now, that is a biblical understanding. So now, uh, yeah, let's do this. Let's take just, just a couple of minutes... And let's look at all the things that the Bible says is better than money. Let's, we're not going to look at everything, but let's look at a list of things that the Bible says is better than money. This is scriptural value as opposed to market value. Uh, look at Matthew chapter 16. 
Matthew chapter 16. Are you all enjoying this this morning? Amen. This is great at Christmas. You don't have to feel guilty about helping somebody that won't work. I got one thing to say to him. Bah humbug. Oh, man, I meant to do that. I was supposed to read the Christmas carol and apply that to the social gospel. I remember enough of it to make application, though. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 26. For what has a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Do you know what's worth more than anything? Your soul. The souls of men are worth more than anything. I want you to remember that when we get to the social gospel. All right? What's another thing that's, that's got value? Look at Proverbs chapter 16. Proverbs chapter 16. Proverbs 16, 8. Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues without right. Do you know what's better than money? Righteousness. There's some things that we can't do to get gain. And we can be holy. You know, that's where that, that's where that health wealth gospel, you know, that if you live right, God will make you rich. You know, the only people that get rich off the prosperity gospel are the preachers. That's it. So I'm thinking of trying. Um, all right, look at Proverbs chapter 16 and look at verse 16. How much better is it to get wisdom than gold and to get understanding rather to be chosen than silver? So what's better than gold and silver? Wisdom and understanding. See, this is why, uh, this is, this is my, my main problem with the thrust of modern education. Now, I've always got to qualify this. I'm not talking about our Christian teachers. Amen? I hope you all, you teachers know how much I'm for you. But the modern educational system is about training young people for a job. It's school to work. That's not what education's about. Education is about giving them wisdom and understanding, and then they will become marketable in the marketplace. They'll become profitable in the marketplace. They'll become valuable in the marketplace. We don't want to train useful idiots. Amen? Yeah, I can do this. That, that's not what we want. And that's a huge problem. Well, they got to get a job. they got to work. Yeah, they do. And that's why if you give them a well-rounded education, they'll never be hungry. In our system, unless, of course, it collapses, as we'll get to in a little while. All right. What else is valuable? Look at Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 1. Do all of our educators agree with that? I know you do. That's why you've given your life to it. That's why you've given your life to it. Well, some of these kids will never, you know, they're never going to be rocket scientists. Well, that's what they said about Einstein. Interesting. Interesting. Man, you guys should have been my teacher. Can you imagine me sitting in your class? You know, studying fractions or something. Oh, look at the bird. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was, that was me. Proverbs 22.1. A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches and loving favor than silver and gold. How about your name? Amen. That's more valuable than money. 
Then look at Psalm 19. Psalm 19. Value. Value. It's amazing how, honestly, these things that we're listing, somehow they fall out of the conversation. When we talk about economics, these things just fall by the wayside. Well, we're not going to do that here. Amen. Look at Psalm chapter 19 and verse 9. The fear of the Lord is clean. Isn't that a great statement? The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than the honey and the honeycomb. So what this is saying is that the fear of the Lord and God's righteous judgments are more to be desired than money or food. It's more valuable. It's more valuable. Look with me at uh, Proverbs 19. Proverbs 19. I love this verse. Proverbs 19.1. Better is the poor that walketh in his integrity than he that is perverse in his lips and is a fool. Man, I'll tell you what, we got a lot of rich fools, don't we? Now, it doesn't mean if you have money that you're a fool. There are some people that have been so conditioned by the FDR socialists that they think if a person has money, they're sinful. They've not read their Bible, man. But it's better to be poor and have integrity than to be a fool and be rich. Amen. Amen. Uh, the, the, the flip side of what I just said, some people that think that if you're rich that, uh, that you're sinful... The flip side of that is if you don't have a lot of money, that you're not wise, that you're foolish, uh, that you're, you don't have value. That's completely false. I mean, when we were growing up, we were so poor, we couldn't afford to pay attention. We didn't have any money. We were broke, man. Our family, when you said cheese, you'd line up like you're going to get it, you know? I mean, we were poor. The thing that I that I hated the most was hand-me-downs. My brother, I'd look like Dennis the Menace. Had my you know my hair sticking up everywhere, my clothes all cinched up, everything was too big. We didn't have any money because Dad had chosen to sacrifice to go and plant churches. Just because they didn't have money didn't mean that Dad didn't have integrity or wisdom or or purpose in life. There are people on the ministry, millions of dollars sent to missions, all of those things because Dad decided that God wanted him to go and be poor and plant churches. So the value, or the value of the person is not based on their income, either poor or rich. Then, Proverbs 31.10. Who can find a virtuous woman for her price is far above rubies? I'll tell you what, in our culture, you're not going to find one on the view. I don't care how much they pay them. Amen? Different subject, I guess. <laughs> wicked. Just evil and wicked. Demons. I was at the library in Piqua and uh, told my Sunday school class, I won't tell you all the whole story, but I was buying a, a they have a used book section in the library there uh, that you can buy. And so I found a couple of books by a conservative, and they're a buck a piece, so I was buying them. I had one of them, and I didn't have the other, and so I was going to give the other one away. Um, and this woman saw that I was buying these books. And she started telling me how stupid I was for reading this conservative. And she said, uh, I said, well, what don't you? I laughed. I thought it was funny. 
I said, what don't you like about him? Well, he's always lying. Well, really, what has he lied about? Um, I, I, I kid you not. She said, he says that Obama's not a citizen. He's a socialist. And it's real hard to answer that stuff. You know what I mean? You're just, you know, you start kind of going into convulsions. I don't understand. And so I said, well, he is a citizen, but he's also a socialist. See? You just listen to those kind of people. I said, he would tell you he's a socialist. You know, it's just crazy how people are. Can I promise you something? This lady was not a virtuous woman. She was evil, man. The more I got into the conversation, she was a demon. She was evil, and so I messed with her. It was funny, man. Jacob was with me. And she, this lady, oh, man. And I just smiled the whole time and talked with her and would ask her questions. And it, it, it was just amazing. And in our culture, a virtuous woman, a lady that loves the Lord, understands her role in God's economy. Do you understand how valuable they are becoming? Thank God for the godly ladies here. Laura and I will be married 22 years coming up this month. Or 20 years coming up. (laughs) Feels like 22, but it's only 20. It's on the 22nd. That's the the slip there. Guys love to see greatness stumble, don't you? That's just it. So we've been married for 20 years. And after 20 years, she is more virtuous every day more godly and that value becomes more real to me every day and all you men who have a godly wife value her she's worth more than your overtime she's worth more than your bass boat or your golf clubs or your hunting license she's worth more than any of that notice I didn't say books but she's well I've got a list of some more things but let's go on let's let's look at this that's our biblical understanding of economics God gives value God has established work I didn't take the time to look it up but the Bible says that God despises a false measure he hates that so let's let's talk about economics a little bit Let's look at our timeline, and we're doing it differently than we have. We had the two lines of church history. Economics is way too convoluted. This, in our nation, Adam Smith, 1723 to 1790, he wrote an inquiry into the wealth of nations. Uh, He published that in 1776. That is kind of the basis for economics. Really, the father of modern economics is a man named Thomas Malthus. How many of you have heard of Thomas Malthus? Malthus came up in studying economics. He said that... Um, population is going to grow by about 3%. Uh, it's going to double every 24 years or 25 years the population will double. That means that we're going to get to the place where uh, it's not sustainable on the planet. Won't, this planet won't be able to sustain that much life. So we've got to diminish, we've got to stop some people from having kids, and we've got to kill others. Thomas Malthus, who's actually a clergyman of some kind. And uh, so Malthus, he's the father of what's called modern eugenics. He was in the early 1700s. It's because of him that economics is called the dark science. That's why it's called that, because of Malthus. He was evil. Um, And by the way, Margaret Sanger, Planned Parenthood, Woodrow Wilson, 
the president, um, uh, uh, George Bernard Shaw, the Fabian socialist playwright and agnostic. They were all eugenicists. Margaret Sanger was the founder of Planned Parenthood. The reason they founded those organizations was to kill black babies, to kill poor people. That's why they, that's why they founded them. That, that's, don't, ever, don't ever miss that. That's what Planned Parenthood was about. And that's based on the theories of Thomas Malthus, Malthus the dark economist and overpopulation. Uh, obviously flawed theories. Adam Smith is the one who identified the true system of economics, and that is that you only have a certain amount of capital, and you use that capital, you invest that capital, you risk that capital, you apply that with hard work, and you get a return. And what happens is, in that kind of a system, it's self-regulating. It's based on the laws of supply and demand. If um, straw, if there is more straw than gold, and people want both of them because gold is more scarce, there's less supply, the price will be higher. That, that's the way that that works. And so if you remove artificial restrictions, then the value of something will be based by the market. The market will set the value. Uh, I was at a meeting over in Indiana. I was preaching. Somebody came to me and they had... Uh, uh, something from Martin Luther, a book by Martin Luther that had been framed, a page, a leaf of Martin Luther's Bible, maybe. And he asked me, he said, how much do you think this is worth? Well, I don't have any idea. You know what I said? Whatever someone's willing to pay for it. That's the market, right? That sets the market. So that's what Adam Smith believed. Well, what about the poor? What about the poor? Well, the simple fact is that based on a capitalistic system, you will always have the poor. Amen? Uh, you'll have more in the socialist system. Jesus said the poor will always be with you. Jesus said that. Um, let me say it again. Jesus said that. Do you think he knows? Yeah. So every society will have their poor. But what Adam Smith understood was that in a capitalistic system, the quality of life of the poor will be much higher. But how many, would you, how many of you would rather be poor in America? Where would you rather be poor? America or Bangladesh? Yeah. See, you'd rather be poor in America than rich in Bangladesh. Why? The capitalistic system raises everyone's quality of life and creates opportunity. Well... If you have unrestricted, if you don't have restrictions on business, they'll destroy the people. They'll crush the people. Really? Really? No. They'll work. There will be, there will be competition for employees. And the companies that treat their people the best will have the best employees. Anybody ever heard of Henry Ford? That's that whole philosophy came from. And you know what Henry Ford was? A fascist, a Nazi fascist. Yeah. Where do you think Hitler got his cars? From Ford. It's where he got his trucks. From Ford. Ford was a fascist. But he still understood you got to take care of your people. They'll make better products. They'll work better for you. You raise the quality of their life. Oh, yeah. Then they'll be able to buy your product. That's capitalism. They understood that. So that is Adam Smith. 
Another man came along, Charles Darwin. You say, what does Charles Darwin have to do with economics? Well, Charles Darwin, origin of the species, by natural selection, or the, what's the next word? Anybody remember? The survival? No. Of favored races. No, survival of fittest was coined by Herbert Spencer, who was a, a different person altogether. So Charles Darwin, he is the father of godless science. He, not the father of it, but the great perpetrator of godless science. So he published Origin of the Species, 1859. He published, Karl Marx comes along and publishes Das Kapital in 1867, the Communist Manifesto before that. Karl Marx was a Christian. His father was Jewish. He was a Jewish lawyer. When it became illegal for a Jew to practice law he, in Germany, he had his entire family baptized into the Lutheran church. Interesting. Karl Marx, you can read it, he wrote Christian poetry until he came across the writings of Charles Darwin. When he came across the writings of Charles Darwin, he realized he had an escape from God. And he established, because uh, as his basis... For his scientific view of the economy, that's what he called it, was Charles Darwin's scientific view of the origin of man. So if we can remove God from the whole subject, then we understand that man is the center of it. And if man's the center of it, then now we have the emphasis of man, not the man. Men, not the man. The difference in the United States of America, it's about individual responsibility individual accountability, personal freedom, personal rights, right? In socialism, it's about the whole. That idea was Marx's idea coming from Darwin. Um, there's so much that I could give you on that. Uh, Marx, together with his forebears, associates, and successors, was a doctrinaire evolutionist who tried to build his society on evolutionary premises. There is abundant document, documentation of this assessment, and few would even question it. His denial of God and his knowledge of Darwin inspired Marx to develop his new godless worldview now known as communism. That comes from Answers in Genesis. Um, so many of the things that we could talk about with Marx. I want to give you some information that I discovered about Marx when I was writing the latest issue of the Ancient Baptist Journal. Marx... Let's talk about his personal character. Uh, what about the personal character of the man? Marx was filthy. He refused to take baths. He was covered in boils because of his filth. His wife lived in poverty and squalor because of his refusal to work and a bohemian lifestyle. He had seven children, one of whom, a son, Freddie, was illegitimate and never acknowledged by his father. He's the only one that made it into life happy. Only six people went to Marx's funeral. Two of his three daughters, oh, only four of his children lived to adulthood. Do you know why the other three died? The squalor that they lived in. It was so filthy, the children got diseases and died. Two of his three daughters committed suicide. Marx postulated fantasies as facts, and these vain imaginations changed the, political, the world political system. Lenin, Stalin... Chairman Mao, Pol Pot, and Adolf Hitler, Fidel Castro and his hitman Che Guevara, 
all adopted the philosophies of Karl Marx. All were totalitarian despots. All were anti-Semites. All were mass murderers. Ideas do have consequences. And this attack on the truth, which Christ foresaw, completely ravaged both mainline Protestantism and weak-minded Baptists. We're going to get there and show you how that happened. Karl Marx was a wicked, wicked man. The distinguishing feature of communism, this is from the uh, Communist Manifesto. The distinguishing feature of communism is not the abolition of property generally, but the abolition, the abolition of bourgeois property. That's the middle class. But modern bourgeois private property is the final and most complete expression of the system of producing and appropriating products that is based on class antagonism, on the exploitation of the many by the few. In this sense, the theory of the communists may be summed up in the single sentence, abolition of private property. You're not allowed to have what's yours. Okay, so when you die, Patrick Kennedy is quite wealthy. And aren't you glad to know that? (laughs) Patrick Kennedy is wealthy. He starts with nothing, works hard saves. And he's not, you know, wealthy in the sense of inherited wealth. He just works hard, saves his money, keeps it, inherits it. He, he leaves inheritance for his children. You know, the Bible says that you're supposed to leave inheritance for your children. You know, the Bible says that. So he does that. He does. He honors the Lord with his money. He, he, he gives to the Lord's work. And when he dies, he leaves an inheritance for his children and grandchildren. And the government comes and takes half of it. Why? Because we have to abolish private property. It's not the government's. Well, he ought to pay his fair share. Really? Really? Well, you know, Tony, I like your truck. I need a truck because i got some property and some things that I need to do. I'm going to take it. I should probably pick somebody smaller. Let's see. It's hard to find somebody smaller than me to take their truck. It's crazy. It's insane. That's the abolition of private property. It's, it's, it's called stealing. Well, that's what, that's what uh, he believed. Well, let me say this. While we're talking about that, the idea of leaving an inheritance for your children, that's also the way that the Lord's work has been funded. One of the reasons that, that churches struggle so much is because the government consumes so much of people's estates in death. Like our, like our elevator here. Someone died, left some money, and I think it was $40,000 15 years ago to put in this elevator. Somebody gave that money. That's, it, it's, it's seniors, when they die, leaving a portion of their inheritance to continue God's work in the local church. Amen? See, local churches like ours, it's different than the big churches downtown. It's different. Those people, man, they're told they have to give that. You get, they send you a bill, right? We don't do that. I just make you feel guilty in the church service. It's different. <laughs> no, that, that's the way that the, that the Lord's work is, is, is funded, and that's part of our, of our senior citizens caring for their own Leaving an inheritance for the Lord's work and for their children. That's really important. Amen? You all agree with that? It's really important that we do that. Uh, There are people that leave an inheritance to lost children, and that money gets spent 
on things completely against what God would want to do and do nothing for the Lord's work with that. We've got to think about those things. We've got to think about those things. We don't get money from outside to fund Grace Baptist Church. God's people in Grace Baptist Church fund Grace Baptist Church. You've got to think about those things. All right, so now. He says, we communists have been reproached with the desire of abolishing the right of personally acquiring property as the, as the fruit of a man's own labor, which property is alleged to be the groundwork of all personal freedom, activity, and independence. It is. The right to own, the right to private property and private possessions is the ground of all personal liberty and freedom. It is. Of course, Karl Marx is against that. Karl Marx said, My object in life is to dethrone God and destroy capitalism. Why would any person respect Karl Marx? Why would any person want to be called a Marxist? Do you know what Barack Obama's mother was? Anybody know? She was a Marxist. She met Barack Obama's father, another Marxist, at a Marxist meeting. He grew up in a Marxist home around other Marxists. All of his friends are Marxists. At least half of his uh, cabinet and these czars are avowed Marxists. How many of you honestly did not know that? Seriously, how many of you did not know that? That's our nation. Whoever would have thought that we would elect a Marxist as president of the United States? When he was being inaugurated, I happened to be in New York City, and he had graduated from Columbia. We had gone and visited Riverside Church. And uh, as we're walking back to the subway, Dalton Robertson and his daughters were with us. I wanted to see Columbia University. I'd never been on the campus, of course, with the study of John Dewey and some of these others. Um, I wanted to see the campus. So we walked onto the campus, and I'd forgotten it was uh, uh, Obama's, President Obama's inauguration day. And so we get there, and you can pull it up online. It, it was the second largest gathering of people for the Obama inauguration in the, the big square at Columbia University, big jumbotrons. And everybody's there. They had school kids there. You know, they brought the school kids in to show them this great day of inaugurating Barack Obama. And so I decided that I would participate. And so I just started walking up and down the aisle, screaming, we are inaugurating a socialist. We're inaugurating a communist. They're interviewing this little girl about how great it was that Barack Obama was being inaugurated on television. And I got next to her, and I said, did they tell you he's a socialist? And her eyes are going like this to the camera, back to me, like this. What do I say? What do I do? I looked at the kids. I said, kids, you need to understand, Barack Obama is a socialist. You need to understand that. He's a socialist. Now, what's funny is all of a sudden, there were people that were trying to shout me down. And I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought you liberals were for free speech. I thought political dissent was the highest form of patriotism. It's amazing, man. It is amazing that we have inaugurated a socialist. But he's not the only one. Here's what Ron Paul said. You don't have a right to something from the government. Government has nothing. Whatever they give, they must take from someone else. What does government produce? 
nothing. They take from us. And we've gotten so used to that. Someone tell me what the percentage of tax was that spawned the Boston Tea Party. What was the percentage? Was it like one or one and a half percent on the tea? Is that what it was? Yeah. How's that for an average of 50% tax for an American today? State, local, federal taxes. 50%. 50%. That's the abolition of private property. You've got to understand that. That is the abolition of private property. Let's go on. It is evident, this is Francis Whalen. Francis Whalen was a great Baptist preacher. Uh, he lived in the middle of the 1800s. He was one of the early presidents of Brown University. He wrote The Elements of Political Economy, which was the most widely used economics textbook in, Amer economics textbook in America uh, in the 1800s. Francis Whalen, Baptist preacher, he wrote it. Listen to what he said. It is evident that government possesses nothing. All that it possesses is precisely so much taken from the annual revenue of individuals. In this case, therefore, it really bestows nothing, but only causes a transfer of annual revenues from one party to another. That's Francis Whalen. You know when he wrote that? I think it was 1837. These are not new ideas. They're not new ideas. Um, here is what he wrote on communism. This is what Francis Whalen wrote on communism. Among the most civilized and enterprising nations, the laws of distribution are based on the recognition of private property. In view of inequalities which seem to spring out of this system, theories... What, did you hear what he said? Inequalities uh, which seem to spring. Can I tell you something? Every man's created equal, but every man's production is not equal. If we were loading trucks... Okay, if we were loading trucks, I promise you that Doug Schmidtmeyer is going to load more than me. He's going to be more valuable in that setting than I am. We're not equal in that. If we're talking about cooking, if y'all are going to come over to the house and you've got a choice between me cooking for you or Laura cooking for you, she's more valuable. Than that. I'm going to make you scrambled eggs. I can. That's it. See, we're not equal. Amen? Do you get that? We are not equal. How many of you understand that some of our jobs are not as valuable financially as other jobs? How many of you get that? You get that. That's a so the reason people don't like that, that's a socialist mindset. The idea of labor and management. You don't own the company. The company does not exist so you can have a job. Somebody tell me why the company exists. To make money. That's not a bad thing. All right? So... Let's continue with Whalen. Based on the recognition of private property, in view of inequalities which seem to spring out of this system, theories have recently been broached which assail private property and demand its abolition and a radical revolution which shall establish society upon some other basis to these theories, the terms communism and socialism have been applied. Men like Karl Marx and Louis Blank who would have the working classes or somebody on their behalf take possession of all the property of the country to be administered for the general benefit of the whole productive resources of the nation, being under the management of the general government, resting on universal, equal, direct suffrage by ballot. 
It is enough to say of these theories that experiments on the first, he had talked about communalism, all right, that's the first, communalism uh, have resulted only in sad failures, and that the second, that's Marxism, untried as yet. And so when he writes, there was no Soviet Union, there was no China, okay? Untried as yet proposes for some existing evils a remedy which must, unless human nature is completely transformed, prove worse than the disease. Sound practical economy must reject these crudities. Francis Whalen, Baptist preacher, that was published in 1876. So now these ideas, these ideas have been around. People understood them. How did they get into our society then? How did they get into our culture? Well, in the Christian world, there was a man, his name was Walter Rauschenbusch. He lived from 1861 to 1918. He wrote three books, Christianity and the Social Crisis in 1907, Christianity and the Social Order in 1912, Theology for the Social Gospel in 1917. Walter Rauschenbusch was from Germany. Uh, his father had come here. His father was a Lutheran pastor who became a Baptist preacher, understanding what the Word of God said about church doctrine. Well, he had trained his son, went, sent him to, to Rochester Seminary, but then sent him to Germany to study. Germany at that time, in the 1800s, was being uh, overrun by these higher critics. They were people who didn't believe in the historical accuracy of the Scripture, and they were changing the meaning of the Word of God. Rauschenbusch was influenced by those people. He came back to America. He pastored a church near Hell's Kitchen in New York for 11 years. He stopped preaching the gospel and started focusing on the suffering of the people. And he wrote these books, this theology for the social gospel. He rejected the truth of the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. He did not believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross to save us from our sins. He said... Jesus did not in any real sense bear the sin of some ancient Briton who beat up his wife in B.C. 56 or of some mountaineer in Tennessee who got drunk in A.D. 1917. Really? See, he didn't believe the Scriptures. This is a Baptist man, Walter Rauschenbusch, hired by A.A. A. Hodge at the University of uh, at, at the Rochester Theological Seminary to corrupt the minds of young Baptist students. Walter Rauschenbusch, is the father of the social gospel. The, the, the uh, Episcopal Church USA today has a day set aside to honor Walter Rauschenbusch today. Not, not on this calendar day, but in our day. They have a day on their ecclesiastical calendar to honor Walter Rauschenbusch. He said this, but he did, talking about Christ's sacrifice, but he did in a very real sense bear the weight of the public sins of organized society. And they, in turn, are causally connected with all private sins. He was a socialist. He was a Marxist. All right? Rauschenbusch enumerates six sins, all of a public nature, which combined to kill Jesus. He bore their crushing attack in his body and soul. He bore them not by sympathy, but by direct experience. Insofar as the personal sins of men have contributed to the existence of these public sins, he came into collision with the totality of evil mankind. It requires no legal fiction of imputation. Remember, imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ? He calls that legal fiction uh, to explain that he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Solidarity 
explains it. Lekwalesa, what was the name of Lekwalesa's movement in uh, Poland? Solidarity. Solidarity. He was a socialist labor organizer fighting against the communist dictators. All right? That's the idea of solidarity. Rauschenbusch enumerated six social sins which Jesus bore on the cross. Religious bigotry. What's religious bigotry? Uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. That's why Jesus died on the cross, because of religious bigotry. The combination of graft and political power. The corruption of justice. Anyone heard of social justice lately? He's the father of it. The corruption of justice. The mob spirit being the social group gone mad. And mob action, militarism, and class contempt. The mob spirit. You know what the mob spirit is? Elections. Voting. Every student of history will, will recognize that these sum up constitutional forces in the kingdom of evil. Jesus bore these sins in no legal or artificial sense, but in their impact on his own body and soul. He had not contributed to them as we have, and yet they were laid on him. They were not only the sins of Caiaphas, Pilate, or Judas, but the social sin of all mankind to which all who ever lived have contributed and under which all who ever lived have suffered. All right, so here's what we have. You had Karl Marx. Karl Marx comes and introduces communism, socialism, a political agenda that says that private property is the root of all evil. Walter Rauschenbusch takes and marries that with Christianity. So now what you have in America, especially Europe and America, the gospel is not the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The gospel is giving to the poor. That's the social gospel. The Salvation Army. While doctrinally we would disagree with many of the tenets on which it was founded. All right? We have a, had a different theological system. But they did preach the gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They were primarily concerned with leading people to Jesus Christ. And they would use the, the social agenda to do that. Now, the gospel in the Salvation Army is almost completely gone. It is almost completely gone. People are given counseling. They're given food. They're given clothing. But the clear, unadulterated gospel of the Word of God is almost completely gone from the organization. Why? That's the result of the social gospel. When you understand missions... Missions from the United Methodist Church, from the Presbyterian Church USA, from, uh, from uh, the American Baptist Church. When these people go out and do missions, it is making the world a better place. And the problem is, here's the problem with the social gospel. The social gospel is not combining care for man's personal good with care for his eternal soul. That's not what the social gospel is. Because the simple fact is, when you start emphasizing on the person physically, that compromises the message spiritually. It always does. Here's the idea. If I get a group of people together and I say, we are going to go and minister to the poor, it is much easier to care for their physical need than to lead them to Jesus Christ. Amen? Salvation requires repentance and belief in Jesus Christ. 
It requires an understanding that they deserve hell, that they are sinners that deserve to go to hell, just like the rest of us. Convincing them of that through the Scriptures. Persuading them as the Holy Spirit draws them. That's a whole lot different than ladling some soup. And here's the thing about the social gospel. In the social gospel, what is your success? Your success is just doing it. You are congratulated simply for being in the process of helping these people. You don't have to accomplish anything. Can I ask you a question? Did the war on poverty? What's our exit strategy? Huh? How's the war on poverty going? How's it doing? Great society. How'd the great society do? Lyndon Baines Johnson brought in as much socialism as any president that we had. How does a guy who never had a job other than the United, other than working in government have a plane strip, or a, a, an airstrip in his backyard? Graft, greed, corruption. Lyndon Baines Johnson, one of the most greediest, wicked men in, the ever, in, in government. He's followed up by that great spiritual giant, Richard Nixon. Between those two, Johnson and Nixon... Our economy was absolutely destroyed. Spiritually in churches, in most places, the gospel. You, you watch what happens. You watch all the advertising. You watch all the movies. You, you let, let's go back to, uh, to A Christmas Carol. What was Scrooge's problem? Huh? Greed. How did he fix the problem? Where's the gospel? Anywhere in it? Anywhere in it? No. It's not. Because Charles Dickens didn't understand the need of the salvation of the soul. He didn't get that. That's the social gospel. It was in England before it was here in America. Walter Rauschenbusch brought that for us. Okay, let's go on. Okay, so we had Adam Smith, Charles Darwin, Francis Wayland, Elements of Political Economy, 1837, the Baptist preacher, Karl Marx, Das Kapital, 1867, Walter Rauschenbusch, Theology for the Social Gospel. 1917. John Maynard Keynes. Let's go to Keynes, and we're going to finish up with this wonderful individual. How many of you ever heard of the term Keynesian economics? Lord John Maynard Keynes. This man, he was a brilliant man, just simply a genius. His father was an, econo was an economics professor. He entered, um, he, he got a scholarship to Eton, I think, when he was 14. Uh, when he was a young man, he went to India with his father and uh, worked with his father when he was in his 20s. He wrote a famous book, a masterpiece on India versus the pound, the Indian currency versus the pound, and that launched him into notoriety. He became independently wealthy on his writing, um, and he is the man that has destroyed the world economy. Um, John Maynard Keynes. Three events take place in 1883. Karl Marx died. Six people came to his funeral. John Maynard Keynes was born. And the Fabian Socialist Society was born. 1883, all of these things happened. Keynes was a, was, an, was a Fabian Socialist. The Fabian Socialists were another branch of communists. Marx wanted to overthrow capitalism by military uh, revolution. The Fabian Socialists wanted to overthrow capitalism by infiltration of the political systems and educational systems. The offshoot of the Fabian Society in England 
famous members of the Fabian Society, John Maynard Keynes, George Bernard Shaw, others. Um, uh, Gramsci, Antonio Gramsci is a famous Fabian. Antonio Gramsci from Italy. He had the same philosophy. Um, Hillary Clinton wrote her master's thesis in college on Antonio Gramsci. Antonio Gramsci had a famous student. His famous student was Saul Alinsky. Saul Alinsky wrote a book called Rules for Radicals. Rules for Radicals is a way to gather groups together through community organizing and overthrow the capitalist system. Barack Obama taught Rules for Radicals to his social organizations for four years. I don't have my copy of Rules for Radicals with me, but if you will go to the bookstore, go to the library, open up Rules for Radicals, and see who Saul Alinsky dedicated the book to. These people are so crazy, when you talk about them, you sound crazy. Saul Alinsky dedicated his book to Lucifer, the first radical. Now, how many of you think that sounds crazy? Can't make it up. All right? So that is the trail that leads to the government that's currently in the United States of America, the Fabian Socialists. In America, you had a group of the Fabian Socialists led by a man named John Dewey. John Dewey, along with Horace Mann, signers of the Humanist Manifesto, which is the socialist gospel, not the social gospel, the socialist, the religious, secular, socialist manifesto of the communists in America who wanted to take over the educational society, educational system. This is not hidden. Go online and download the Humanist Manifesto. I have a copy of it in print, an original copy of it in my office. John Dewey, the original signer of the Humanist Manifesto. That is the American offshoot founded at Columbia University to influence the educational system of our nation. Fabian Society in Europe, Columbia University, and the Teacher's School in America. It's all an offshoot of Marxism, but not militant Marxism, not militaristic Marxism. It is Marxism through the course of ideas. All right, now, here's what John Maynard Keynes said. There's no subtler, no surer means of overturning the existing basis of society than to debauch the currency. The process engages all the hidden forces of economic law on the side of destruction and, it do, and does it in a manner in which not one man in a million is able to diagnose. Here's what John Maynard Keynes wanted. Keynes wanted a global economic system. And in order for there to be a global economic system, you had to destroy the dollar. You had to lower the value of the dollar for there to be a global economic system. Out of this, um, in 1944... 1944, at the Mount Washington Hotel in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire. Hotel still there. You could go there. There was a conference. There was a meeting. At that conference, you had John Maynard Keynes from England, and you had Henry Dexter White from the United States. Henry Dexter White was the assistant to the Treasury of the Secretary in America. What they did at that meeting was the beginning, the establishment of what is called the International Monetary Fund. The International Monetary Fund. The purpose of the International Monetary Fund was to fund governments around the world. The basis for the International Monetary Fund was um, over a million ounces of gold from the United States and billions of dollars in cash. The other thing that the Bretton Woods meeting did was it pinned the dollar to gold. And it said that 
gold would be set at $35 per ounce. And so the exchange currency for the world would be the dollar based on gold at $35 an ounce. All right? And so what people, they put that money into the International Monetary Fund. We had a, a, a surplus of money going out of the United States so people could borrow money from the United States. That's the International Monetary Fund. The offshoot of the International Monetary Fund that was founded was the World Bank. Okay? You all understand those things happened. Bretton Woods, that was John Maynard Keynes and Henry Dexter White. Now, this is where it gets interesting. Henry Dexter White was a Soviet spy. Pastor... You've been watching Glenn Beck. I don't even know if Glenn Beck knows who Henry Dexter White was. This is a fact of history. You can check it out for yourself. We can have our own opinions. We can't have our own facts. Henry Dexter White is a known Soviet spy. He helped get us into the war with Japan. The Russia wanted us to be involved in wars to help diminish us. So what they did was they want Russia did not want Japan they did not did not want Japan to go in with Germany in the world war. So they had Henry Dexter White stop a 500 million dollar loan that the United States was going to give to Japan to help stabilize their economy. When they stopped that then he had White had his boss continue to put pressure on Japan through tariffs. Uh, Smoot uh, Hawley, is that the, Smoot Hawley, I think, that brought in all the tariffs, and that was the, that was the reason that Japan used for Pearl Harbor. That's all a direct result of Henry Dexter White. Another thing that Henry Dexter White did, when Chiang Kai-shek was trying to fight against Mao Zedong in China, the, the communists did not want, they wanted Mao to, to win. So Henry Dexter White stopped a $500 million grant from going to Chiang Kai-shek to fight against the revolution at Mao. So that's how all this communism and all the war and all... Henry Dexter White, he's the guy that's the author of International Monetary Fund and the World Bank from America, influenced with John Maynard Keynes. John Maynard Keynes' desire was to destroy the dollar. All right, so now let's go on. Francis Whalen said, Now a law cannot create capital, since if it could, there would be no necessity for any other labor than that of legislation. And in order to grow rich, a nation would have nothing to do but meet in public assembly and spend its whole time in making and hearing speeches and enacting laws. I believe, however, that this mode of growing rich has never been found remarkably successful. All right. Until, but he, so he would not recognize the United States of America now. How do we get money now? We just print it. The Federal Reserve just decides to infuse $600 billion into the economy. What was that, two or three weeks ago that happened? They just created it out of thin air, $600 billion. Why did that happen? Because in 1971, Richard Nixon, all of a sudden, our trade balance was going the wrong direction, where we were now starting to import more than we were exporting. Why did that happen? Because of the Marshall Plan at the end of World War II, we had absolutely destroyed, we had absolutely destroyed Germany and Japan, right? Bombing of Dresden, uh, Hiroshima, Nagasaki, we had destroyed their cultures. We had, we had destroyed Berlin. 
So in the Marshall Plan, they were trying to react to what had happened to the Treaty of Versailles at the end of World War I. Remember, at the end of World War I, the Treaty of Versailles, Clemenceau and, and these others, uh, Lloyd George, they had um, put this punitive, these punitive sanctions on Germany. So harsh that Germany couldn't pay it. And that gave rise to Hitler. Militarism again and Hitler, right? How many of you remember that? That's what happened. Well, at the end of World War II, they didn't want that to happen. So at Yalta, you have the, 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 the conference at Yalta, uh, Joseph Stalin, that great good old Uncle Joe, and Winston Churchill, who's near death, and FDR. You have them meet, and they divide up Europe with Russia, right? Remember that happening? Well, through that process, you have the Marshall Plan. Again, John Dewey, Henry Dexter White with the Marshall Plan. In, we are loaning them money, and for them to be able to pay us back in the Marshall Plan, here's what we had to do. We had to make sure that there were dollars being pumped into those cultures. Dollars going into Germany, dollars going into Japan. We had to make sure that we had U.S. soldiers stationed there so that they would spend money there, and money would constantly be going so that we could be paid back. That's all a part of this shell game that took place at the end of World War II. In, Ch in Japan, we spent $200 billion building their ability to create steel. So then we started importing our steel from Japan and from Germany. And the steel factories in Ohio, Indiana, and Pennsylvania are closing down. You see? So because of that, Japan starts making all the radios. All the radios were made in America before that. In the 20s, 600, billion, 600 million dollars worth of radios being made in the United States. Now, all the radios are made in Japan. All the radios are being made in China. Cheap steel. The yen was 360 yen to one dollar. And so the Japanese automakers are being able to sell their cars over here. And the American automakers can't compete with the price of the cars. Well, our trade imbalance gets so much that these other nations are coming. And part of the Bretton Woods Agreement from 1944 was that they could present... $35 and get an ounce of gold. And Fort Knox was being raided by these other nations. All of our gold is leaving. So in 1971, Richard Nixon removes the dollar from the gold standard. And all of a sudden now, the value of the dollar has been destroyed. And you know what Richard Nixon said? We're all Keynesians now. So that's where we are, John Maynard Keynes. Um, where are we today? Newsweek. Do you remember what happened February 2009? Do you remember what happened? We have our, this big stimulus bill, $800 billion. Newsweek says we're all socialists now. Can you imagine that? Can you even imagine that? Congressional Progressive Caucus. The Congressional Progressive Caucus. Progressive is another name for communist, socialist. Progressive insurance. The reason progressive insurance exists is to raise money for socialist causes. That's the purpose of it. Progressive. Here are the Congressional Progressive Caucus. George Miller, Chairman of the House Education and Labor Committee. Henry Waxman, Chairman of the Committee of Energy and Commerce. Bob Filner, Chairman of the House Veterans Affairs Committee. Barney Frank, Chairman of the House Financial Services Committee. John Conyers, Chairman of the House Judiciary Committee. 
Benny Thompson, Chairman of the House Homeland Security Committee. Nina Val, uh, Nidia Valesquez, Chairman of the House Small Business Committee. Charles Rangel, Chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee. Louise Slaughter, Chairwoman of the House Rules Committee. Bob Brady, Chairman of the House Administration Committee. And Edward Markey, Select Committee on Energy Independence and Global Warning. Every one of those an avowed socialist. This is not some Baptist preacher saying they are. Th that's why they joined this caucus. They'll tell you they are socialists. That's our country. There are more than 100, more than 100 avowed socialists in the United States Congress. And you wonder why the, we're in the mess that we're in. Everybody. And, and I think when you spread the wealth around, it's good for it. But I, listen, I, I respect what you do, and I respect your question. Got to spread the wealth around. With Joe the plumber. Right? He goes to Mount Clover Road Baptist Church. I preach there. I'm in Toledo. He's just asking a simple question. I want to work, I, I, and I want to keep my money. What did Barack Obama say to him? Got to spread the wealth around. What's that called? What's the other name for that? Socialism. And then the third lesson and tip actually come from two of my favorite political philosophers, Mao Zedong and Mother Teresa, not often coupled with each other, but, but the two people that I turn to most to basically deliver a simple point, which is you're going to make choices. You're going to challenge. You're going to say, why not? You're going to figure out how to do things that have never been done before. But here's the deal. These are your choices. They are no one else's. In 1947, when Mao Zedong was being challenged within his own party on his plan to basically take China over, Chiang Kai-shek and the Nationalist Chinese held the cities. They had the army. They had the Air Force. They had everything on their side. And people said, how can you win? How can you do this? How can you do this against all of the odds against you? And Mao Zedong said, you know, you fight your war and I'll fight mine. That's Anita Dunn, White House Communications Director. Her two leading philosophers, the two leading people that influence her, Mother Teresa and Mao Zedong. What? Why is Mao acceptable and Hitler not? Do you understand that Mao killed a whole lot more people than Hitler? How many of you think it was okay if I said, you know, the philosopher that's really influenced me is Adolf Hitler. You know, he had so much adversity. All those Jews were in his way. What would you think about that? Seriously. Should I be speaking to a graduation of high schoolers? This is our government, folks. Socialism, communism. They don't hide it. Here, have you had enough yet? Here. I can guarantee to the American people, because of the inaction of the United States Congress, ever increasing prices unless the demand comes down, and the $5 will look like a very low price in the years to come if we are prohibited from finding new reserves, new opportunities to increase supplies. And guess what this liberal would be all Okay, now here's what's going on. Remember, this is this. They brought big oil in because the prices were too high, and again, if you make a lot of money, you're bad. 
right? Now, can I tell you something? If I owned an oil company, I would want to make a lot of money. That's why I would own the oil company. That's not bad. The prices of oil are high because of supply and demand. How many of you understand that? So if we bring in more oil, the price goes down. It's very simple. But the government, because of all the environmental nut jobs, won't let us drill for oil. There are there is a just in the Rocky Mountain area and in Anwar, there are supplies of oil for one hundred and twenty years minimum, probably up to two hundred years. But we're not allowed to get to it. Okay, so now. I can guarantee to the American people, because of the inaction of the United States Congress, ever increasing prices unless the demand comes down, and the $5 will look like a very low price in the years to come if we are prohibited from finding new reserves, new opportunities to increase supplies. And guess what this liberal would be all about? This liberal will be all about socializing. Uh, um, Careful. Would be about... Basically, taking over and the government running all of your companies. That's Maxine Waters. How many of you are for the government taking over all the oil companies? Anybody here for that? That's not socialism. Do you know what that is technically? That's fascism. That's Nazis. That's what the Nazis were. That's what that's about. Okay. Hi, my name is Rob Porter, and I'm from Irvine, California. I have a question for Hillary Clinton. Mrs. Clinton, how would you define the word liberal, and would you use this word to describe yourself? Thank you. No, Rob, you know, it is um, a word that uh, originally meant uh, that you were for freedom, that you were for the freedom to achieve, that you were willing to stand against big power and on behalf of the individual. Unfortunately, in the last uh, 30, 40 years, it has been turned uh, up on its head and it's been made to seem as though it is a word that describes big government, totally contrary to what its uh, meaning was in the 19th and early 20th century. I prefer the word progressive, which has a real American meaning, going back to the progressive era at the beginning of the 20th century. I consider myself a modern progressive, someone who believes strongly in individual rights and freedoms, who believes that we are better as a society when we're working together. And when we find ways to help those who may not have all the advantages in life get the tools they need to lead a more productive uh, life for themselves and their families. So I consider myself a proud, modern, American progressive, and I think that's the kind of uh, philosophy and practice that we need to bring back to American politics. So you wouldn't use the word liberal, you'd say progressive. <laughs> Senator Gravel, are you a liberal? I wouldn't use either word. <laughs> Remember what we said a progressive is? It's a socialist, it's a communist. Uh, Antonio Gramsci, her mentor, was a progressive. That is the part, that's the Fabian socialist way of explaining the government. Uh, Woodrow Wilson, um, Teddy Roosevelt, early progressives, they wanted to take over the government. Uh, t Teddy Roosevelt, I mean, uh, Woodrow Wilson imprisoned something like 100,000 political dissenters. 
How many of you didn't know that? That's our country, man. That's what the progressives do. They want to take over government. Uh, uh, Woodrow Wilson hated our Constitution, despised our Constitution because it kept getting in the way of what he was wanting to accomplish. All right, so now, Francis Wayland again. In order that every man may enjoy in the greatest degree the advantages of his labor, it is necessary, provided always, he does not violate the rights of his neighbor, first, that he be allowed to gain all that he can. Amen? And second, that having gained all that he can, he be allowed to use it as he will. It is necessary that every man be allowed to gain all that he can, that is, that the arrangements of society be so constructed that every man is able to render his labor in the highest degree available to himself. That's what we believe. That's the complete opposite of the system that we have today. A lot of uh, things to pay for here, and this second stimulus is being talked about at $300 billion. If, in fact, we were to see something like that move forward, are you going to encourage Senator Obama and Senator McCain to change their uh, tax and spending plans in order to pay for all this? Well, I do think in this case, let me say, my, uh, my encouraging will probably have more impact on Senator Obama than Senator McCain. So I don't think... do, you, do you want to encourage him to uh, pull yeah, his spending I do think plans? That, well, I think at this point, there needs to be a focus on a, uh, an immediate increase in spending. And I think this is a time when deficit fear has to take a second, uh, a second seat. I do think this is a time for a very important kind of dose of Keynesianism. Yes, I believe later on there should be tax increases. Speaking personally, I think there are a lot of very rich people out there whom we can tax at a, at a point. Okay, so here's what he's saying. We're in this government meltdown. We're in this economic meltdown. What we need is to spend more. That's what he said. He said we need a dose of Keynesianism. But he said we need a dose of Keynesianism. That's what good. Okay, so this is Barney Frank the great manly one. Here is, and I appreciate your patience. Dr. Keynes killed the patient. I want you to understand the difference. Uh, Hayek was what comes from the Austrian school of economics, which would be very similar to where uh, Francis Wayland was coming. Francis Maynard, or, uh, John Maynard Keynes has established his Keynesian economics. Keynesian economics is a school of thought that prescribes government deficits as a way to lift the economy out of recession and restore full employment. So you increase the government deficit and that gets you out of trouble financially. So here's an essay that someone wrote. Dr. Keynes killed the patient. A morbidly obese gentleman labored into Dr. Hayek's office suffering from severe chest pain. The patient also complained that he was unable to consume his usual 10,000 calorie per day diet. In fact, he was feeling so sick that he could barely scarf down 9,000 calories. He pled that his love for food remained as strong as ever, but his body just wasn't keeping up with his demands. After having a thorough look at the patient, the good doctor could not find anything wrong outside of the patient's extreme portliness. After a moment of reflection, he delivered to his patient a troubling diagnosis. He explained that the chest pain stemmed from the strain the patient's 500-pound body was putting on his heart and that the lack of appetite was his body's attempt to protect itself from this imbalance. Dr. Hayek's prescription was simple. The patient had to dramatically reduce his consumption while undertaking a, moderately, a moderate exercise program with the goal of losing 250 pounds as quickly and safely as possible. Dr. Hayek was aware that it would be physically painful and, emotion, and emotionally difficult process for the man 
but it was the only way to avert a life of suffering or even a heart attack. Unfortunately, our patient rebelled against such an austere program. He had grown very fond of his high-calorie diet, his high-calorie, high-fat diet, and didn't think that now, when he was already depressed from dealing with these ailments, was a good time to deny himself the few pleasures he had left. In his opinion, the doc's prescription was just too simplistic. He thought there just had to be a way to have his cake and eat it frequently. So he waddled out of Dr. Hayek's office as fast as he could, shouting over his shoulder, I'm getting a second opinion. The overweight gentleman sauntered across the street where he found the office of Dr. Keynes. He told the new doctor about his acute chest pain and lack of appetite and complained about the previous doctor's heartless prescription. After a cursory examination, Dr. Keynes rendered his diagnosis. The patient's condition did not stem from the fact that his gigantic frame was causing undue strain on his heart. Instead, the doctor concluded the patient's chest pain was merely causing a temporary lack of hunger. Furthermore, Dr. Keynes argued, the stress of cutting weight at the present time would certainly prove more detrimental to the man's already weak heart. Therefore, his prescription was for the 500-pound man to eat as much as possible, as quickly as possible. Anything less might cause the man to suffer a heart attack, he noted. Now, the doctor did concede that at some point in the distant future, it might be a good idea for the man to shed a few pounds. But for the present, the most important thing to do would be to consume as much as he could stomach. The patient left Dr. Kane's office with a broad smile. After gorging at an all-you-can-eat buffet, he momentarily forgot about his chest pain. It looked like he had found his solution, except a week later he died. That is the exact description of our government. Let me finish with this. We noticed that Barney Frank was uh, a great endorser of Keynesianism. Um, boy, there's so much more that we could cover. Let me just say this. Zygmunt Dobbs conducted the research for Keynes at Harvard and summarizes the political, moral, and economic slant of Keynes and his friends at Cambridge University. Quote, Singing the red flag, the high-born sons of the British upper class lay on the carpeted floor spinning out socialist schemes and homosexual intermissions. The attitude in such gatherings was anti-establishmentarian. To them, the older generation was horribly out of date, even superfluous. The capitalist system was declared obsolete, and revolution was proclaimed as the only solution. Christianity was pronounced an enemy force, and the worst sort of depravities were, were eulogized as, quote, that love which passes all Christian understanding, unquote. Chief of this ring of homosexual revolutionaries was John Maynard Keynes. Keynes was characterized by his male sweetheart, Lytton Strachey, as a liberal and a sodomite, an atheist, and a statistician. His particular depravity was the sexual abuse of little boys. This is the man that is the basis for all modern economic theory. Is it a wonder that Barney Frank admires him? It's astounding that Larry Summers, head of President Obama's National Economic Council and former president of Harvard University, when asked by Charlie Rose, what idea, what person has most influenced your thinking on how to deal with this financial mess? Without hesitation, he answered, Keynes. Winston Churchill, 
known for his wit. He said that socialism as a philosophy, painted socialism as a philosophy of failure, a creed of ignorance, a gospel of envy, whose inherent virtue is equal sharing of misery. That's socialism. That's where we are. We need to understand that whether it is a Republican socialist like John McCain or a Democrat socialist like Barack Obama, we must stand against this because it's immoral. It's immoral. It's unbiblical. It's undefensible. And it's highly destructive to our children's future in the United States of America. The flip side of that is we've got to stop allowing this false egalitarianism to influence our evangelism. The gospel is simply the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ according to the Scriptures. That is the gospel. If helping the poor takes away from the gospel, don't help the poor. As Dr. Sexton often said, these ministries spend all of their time making this world a better place from which to go to hell. Folks, socialism will destroy the economy and the social gospel will destroy evangelism. It's very simple. The dollar, socialism unpins the dollar from gold and the social gospel unpins evangelism from the Word of God. We must understand God has given us the truth about these subjects and we as believers need to know it. Amen? Amen. Let's all stand.